0: Hey there, story junkies! Thanks for joining me for another episode of Southwest Gothic and another exploration into the spooky strangeness of Southwestern history and folklore. Before I launch into the episode itself, let me take a moment to issue a content warning. I know some of y'all listen to this podcast with your kiddos of various ages, and while I'm definitely in favor of frightening children— here's a heads-up that this week's show goes beyond spookiness and also deals with some adult topics. The ghost of the week, when alive, made her living in a very old profession, as did many women in the Old West. Suicide also comes up in this story. There is no explicit content, but the story takes place within the context of such a life, and how some women chose to end it. You know yourself and you know your kids. Use your discretion so you don't have to send me angry messages. And now, on with the story. As the barren flat of desert stretches southeast out of the Central Valley of Arizona, it gives way to scrubby hills that trip over themselves, hiding rocks and spiny vegetation. Secret arroyos and tinajas where fresh water awaits, if only you know where to look. Crossing into Cochise County and nearly to the international border, the Huachuca Mountains rise from this landscape like the scar of a ragged slash wound, poorly healed. These mountains are rugged, arid, unforgiving, and yet they have their beauty. It's a harsh beauty, though, and any pretty thing of a more delicate constitution, even something that would thrive in a gentler environment, is quickly choked by the merciless climate. Perhaps unexpectedly, the foothills are also spotted with human settlements, including a U.S. Army base. Human habitation is sparse, but it's there. The Apache made their way through here for years, and then Spanish and later Americans followed them, attempting, unsuccessfully, to settle them down. While they didn't have any luck with the Apache, both the Spanish and the Americans ended up settling here themselves. The Americans truly dug in, because the Huachuca Mountains hold secrets beyond waterholes and mysticism. The Huachuca Mountains are riddled with mineral ores. In the strange wake of the Western campaign of the Civil War, Arizona gold and silver rush towns sprung up as early as the 1870s. Some, like Globe, have survived to the present day, and others, like Signal, are ghost towns. Tombstone is a ghost town that lives on as a tourist attraction. They all have their own strange stories that we'll save for another time, but most of them coincide to some degree with the Wild West image we've constructed from bits of pulp novels and movie westerns. Let's pause and give some thought to the term ghost town. It's a strange one, implying more than abandonment. It gives a sense that when the living vacated, something else stayed behind. A visit to a ghost town is a thrill that also touches us with lingering sadness, disappointment, fear, or dread wistfulness or regret may hang over the place. We expect ghosts to be born of despair, of violence, and we expect them to behave correspondingly, even in places that aren't entirely abandoned. Sometimes, though, we hear ghost stories that defy our expectations. In the sun-scorched borderlands of Southeast Arizona, a coquettish ghost inhabits a grand old hotel. She bestows her attentions on male visitors, caressing their hands and faces, and whispering sweet nothings in their startled ears. Though she's said to have died by her own hand after a crushing disappointment, this woman's flirtatious spirit continues on, lurking at the bar, wafting her seductive perfume as she passes. If she's in the mood and has the right audience, it's said that she likes to dance. Welcome to Southwest Gothic. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and this is my podcast where I tell strange and spooky tales out of the Southwest. Today's story takes us to Bisbee, Arizona, where the ghost of a former prostitute still makes her home in a historic hotel. Have a seat here at my virtual kitchen table while I tell you about it, but first grab a drink and maybe some folding money, because legend has it that this ghost likes to put on a show. From the start, Bisbee was a little different from the often lawless gold rush towns like neighboring Tombstone, because at Bisbee, the mountains are full of copper rather than gold. Where gold and silver sometimes require only one or two prospectors to make the toil worthwhile, the extraction and processing of copper ore requires an industrial scale operation in order to be profitable. Bisbee and its main mine, the Copper Queen, were built and maintained by investors and the Phelps Dodge Corporation. The miners were laborers, even skilled laborers, rather than just treasure seekers. In many ways, Bisbee was a company town, enjoying order and rule of law not always typical of that area at that time. Bisbee may have had some measure of respectability and culture imported from the east by rail, But it was still the Arizona wilderness. There were dangerous plants and animals, bad soil, and water was precious. It was blisteringly hot. I've heard it said by military men, there ain't no place in hell hotter than Fort Huachuca. Bisbee is at slightly higher altitude, but there was still heat and dust and filth from the mines. Unsettled, subversive Apaches ranged through the mountains, as did smugglers. The town struggled to hold the wildness and lawlessness of the American West at bay, and it didn't always win that struggle. On the one hand, Bisbee had its respectable Main Street, with a theater and opera house, white tablecloth restaurants, and upscale shops. Not one, but two Main Street banks did brisk business and were connected to the New York Stock Exchange. Beautiful brick and masonry buildings were a tasteful mix of Victorian and Art Nouveau styles. Main Street had class. On the other hand, there was Brewery Gulch. The shops and restaurants there were respectable, but of a decidedly blue-collar variety. There were laundries, groceries, and bakeries, and also breweries, plenty of taverns and saloons. Before the city incorporated and designated a red light district a bit farther out, women who sold their company in favors worked in Brewery Gulch. The incorporated city of Bisbee did all right propping up a tidy appearance, but its history of prostitution is long and storied. Some sources I read even hinted that prostitution wasn't outlawed in Cochise County until after World War II and had photographs of prostitution licenses to go along with that information. I wasn't able to verify that one way or the other, but it does appear that, legally or not, prostitution was a tolerated practice for far longer than you might imagine. I'd like to avoid moralizing, but to set up the story, it's important to touch on the Southwest's historical relationship with prostitution. Mostly, it was complex. In a general sense, paradigms of morality were different on the frontier for a variety of reasons. Laws, where they existed, were enforced differently than in urban centers. There was also the question of how vastly outnumbered women were in most areas of the frontier. Their company was in high demand. In contrast to the Victorian East, in many parts of the 19th century Southwest, prostitution was tolerated, or legal, or even encouraged. In some areas, these attitudes continued well into the 20th century. For some women, prostitution was a form of slavery, and they were treated as chattel, and worse. For others, prostitution was an opportunity to operate independently. For most, it was simply the most practical economic option, if not the most savory one. With even a little autonomy, it was possible to make enough money to eventually lift themselves from that life, if they could keep their habits in check and a good head on their shoulders. Some made it out, many didn't, but they all tried. It may have been the best option in the moment, but red-light ladies were always on the lookout for a better opportunity. Bisbee was just down the road from slightly older Tombstone, where sex work was legal and on display, with the storied Birdcage Theatre as its centerpiece. As a company town, Bisbee was less flamboyant, but the working girls were just as busy. Not all were flops in Brewery Gulch or the Red Light District. One higher-class joint that also kept some girls on staff, at least reputedly, was the Copper Queen Hotel. The Copper Queen, as you might guess, was built by the Phelps Dodge Corporation, the same investor-backed company that built the Copper Queen mine. A fine, luxurious place, it was built to provide suitably upscale lodgings for visiting investors and dignitaries. When it opened in 1902, after four years of construction, it was the most opulent building in town. It had the best staff, the best accommodations, and the best amenities, including some that were off the menu. It appears, while the Copper Queen was by no means a bordello, that several attractive, polished, discreet women resided at the hotel, where they hired out their companionship and sexual favors to an exclusively white-collar clientele. They were the escort service of early 20th century Bisbee, and the scant records hint that they did brisk business. Prostitution in Bisbee has a fuzzy history with the law. Whether by the statutes of Arizona Territory, Cochise County, or the state of Arizona, sometimes prostitution has been illegal but quietly tolerated. Other times those laws have been more stringently enforced. It appears that there have been periods of regulation with permits and licenses issued to establishments and practitioners the Copper Queen Hotel seems to have kept its operations clear of the attentions of law enforcement. As the 20th century wore on, production from the Copper Queen mine and other mines slowed down. The Phelps Dodge Corporation began divesting itself of its holdings in and around Bisbee, and in 1970, they sold the hotel. It's changed hands between a few private owners since, but has stayed open all this time. And if you believe the stories, some guests never checked out. Or maybe it's some of the residents who never left. For ghost hunters and other believers in the supernatural, the whole town of Bisbee is rife with spooky vibes. To start, there's all the spiritual energy of the Huachuca Mountains. It has something to do with the conductivity of the metal ores in the hills, which I don't pretend to understand, but the internet leads me to believe that there are plenty of friendly people in Bisbee's hippie community that are more than qualified to fill you in on that. That conductivity seems to extend into the miles of tunnels that run under the town. Of course, there has to be spiritual energy to conduct, and that leads us to the layers of standard tragedies you'd expect from Bisbee's history as an old western town, the indigenous children who hid in the hills after fleeing the horrors of the Spanish mission system, the displacement of indigenous people and mestizos by Anglo settlers, mining deaths from cave-ins and other accidents, and the claustrophobically soul-sapping disappointment of the miners, laborers, and prostitutes whose boomtown dreams hadn't panned out, those lonely souls who would not or could not return to hearth and home back east or in another country. Many who claim the town has a haunted air point back to one tragic historic event, the Bisbee deportation of 1917. This event was one of many mass tragedies to occur as part of the sometimes violent clashes between labor and management that were typical of that era. When mine workers went on strike to protest dangerous working conditions and low pay, the Phelps Dodge Corporation, owner of the Copper Queen mine and much of the town, used underhanded support from local government to kidnap the striking workers and their supporters, load them into cattle cars, and spirit them away across the New Mexico border. Upon arrival in New Mexico, the 1,300 men were dumped from the train and threatened with bodily harm if they returned to Bisbee. Many of them had left families there, loved ones who had no idea what had happened to them. Since a war was on and the nation needed more copper, the events were largely swept under the rug. It was a devastating event for the large working class in Bisbee, suffering on a scale that some say has left permanent psychic scars. That's the town. But let's get back to the Copper Queen Hotel, which has a different spookiness. If you ask around the ghost hunting community, or if you read up in print and online, you'll hear story after story of ghostly encounters at the Copper Queen. There's all the generic spookiness you'd expect at a haunted hotel. Creaks and rattles that can't be the pipes. Whispers and indistinct voices. Flickering lights. Faucets that turn off and on by themselves. Cold spots. The feeling of not being alone in a room when you know you are. The unexplained scent of cigar smoke. Paranormal investigators estimate the number of spirits at the Copper Queen from around a dozen to upwards of 30. There are two, though, that stand out. Billy is a little boy who is said to have drowned in the pool while staying at the Copper Queen with his family on a vacation, sometime in the mid-20th century. Billy is playful, and visitors claim to hear a child giggling some are lucky enough to have a ball rolled or tossed to them down the hall or down the stairs you'll know he's been in your room by the child-sized wet footprints on the rug or on the tile in your bathroom the more notable spirit is julia she's playful too but in a much more adult way it's reported that julia manifests herself almost exclusively to men men sitting alone at the bar report a seductive female voice whispering in their ear when nobody is sitting next to them sometimes she sings or hums a few bars of a sultry tune a man might feel her soft fingertips brush his hands his neck or press more vigorously against his thigh she giggles she coos she carries a faint smell of old-fashioned perfume and why is Julia such a flirt? Well, when she was alive, Julia's professional success depended on it. Julia was a prostitute, though she herself would likely have used some euphemism to describe her work. She wasn't one of those common malls who worked the red light district who had to run off over the border to Naco to keep working every time the local law enforcement decided to clean up the streets. And if you're into Mexican slang, you too think it's hilarious that Sonora has a little border town called Naco. But back to Julia's working conditions. Julia was one of that handful of well-positioned women who lived at the hotel and quietly plied their trade. She would have been pretty, perhaps beautiful, well-groomed and well-dressed. Her manners may or may not have passed muster in a New York or Boston parlor, but she was polished enough to comfortably keep company with the moneyed crowd that signed the guest register at the Copper Queen. There's a room on the third floor called the Julia Lowell Room, named for the amorous ghost. Photographs and a prostitution license are framed and on display, though the photos are of other women, and the license was issued in 1881 in Tombstone to one Diamond Lil and signed by Marshall Virgil Earp. Julia seems to have lived and worked in the hotel in Bisbee during the 1920s. You can find these prostitution licenses in several historical collections around Arizona. Actually, they're licenses to collect taxes on the fees paid for services rendered. It's unclear whether one exists for Julia Lowell, but it isn't on display in room 315 of the Copper Queen. Licensed or not, modern male guests of her room are sometimes graced with attention she won't grant in the public space of the bar. Men who stay the night in the room may feel a cool but affectionate presence slide between the sheets to curl up next to them, but mostly she tends to stay by the foot of the bed. She's been known to massage feet, but more frequently, she's a tickler For the truly favored, Julia's ghost smiles coyly, then rises, turns, and slowly performs a dance, a seductive striptease. If you're one of those precious few men to see Julia's dance, you've experienced a haunting like no other. Legend tells that cute, popular Julia made the most of the hand she'd been dealt at the Copper Queen. Because she lived and worked at the town's high-end hotel, Julia's life as a paid companion had some important advantages when compared to the lives of the girls who worked the seedier red light district. The Copper Queen required their girls to keep up certain standards and appearances. Though they weren't society ladies, they dressed and spoke and carried themselves with an approximation of that grace, at least superficially. They had to stay clean and healthy, and if they had any other vices, it would have been alcohol or opiates like laudanum, they were expected to keep them in check. Living in the protected haven of the hotel, Julia and the other women were more shielded from the threat of physical violence most sex workers face. She made more money, and had built-in filters to her clientele. She had regulars, and for some of them, she was more like a mistress than anything else. And that's where the differences become vital. Women in the Old West often ended up as prostitutes because they had accepted a deceptive job offer, or because they ran out of options. Most, if not all of them, dreamt of a way out. And there weren't many ways up and out to a respectable life for a streetwalker. Some managed to save enough money to set up as entrepreneurs, sometimes in real estate, but more often as madams themselves. The most direct route up and out was marriage. To some white knight, usually in the form of a regular client who was willing to marry the woman and therefore make her respectable. This was not common, but it did happen in the Old West. Maybe more often than you'd think. It was a stigmatized profession, but far less so than back east. Many places out west, especially gold rush towns, endured for years with skewered gender ratios. Women were scarce. Even so, relatively few prostitutes were able to find a marriage arrangement to bring them up in life. This exit route of respectability through marriage was somewhat less of a pipe dream for a woman in Julia's situation. Sheltered by the walls and status of the hotel, her working identity was less public, less out in the gutter. Given her clientele, she had a better chance of meeting someone both willing and able to marry her and provide the comforts she was accustomed to. Many of her clients were from the eastern or central U.S., far from Bisbee. If some hero were to take her home to, say, Chicago, it would be difficult, though not impossible, to investigate her past. More to the point, it wouldn't be worth the trouble. Julia had a better chance than most to escape her circumstances, and so she allowed herself a luxury that was both life-sustaining and deadly dangerous. Julia allowed herself to hope. So, Julia hoped for retirement through marriage. But what were her prospects like? She had a number of regular clients, and some of them felt genuine affection for her. Julia knew how to make each one feel special when she was with him, and the men responded with gifts of flowers, jewelry, perfume, and better, repeat business. She knew the score, though, knew that for every one of them, she was essentially a side piece or a stopgap, a thrill, a dalliance on a cross-country business trip. She played her part, observed, hedged a few bets, but didn't make a practice of letting her heart into the equation. She may have been looking for an exit strategy, but up until one presented itself, she was still a businesswoman and there was no sense mucking things up with romance when business was good. Julia's story changed, though. The details vary by the teller, but it went something like this. Along came that one, the man who was different enough from the others to give her pause. There always is that one who comes along, isn't there? We don't know if he was a local or a traveling man, and the guest registers don't give us his name, so I'm borrowing one and calling him Tom Buchanan. I imagine Tom was a little younger than most of Julia's clients, but just as rich and devastatingly good-looking. They met in the hotel bar, and in all his subsequent visits he never asked for anyone else – always Julia. She didn't mind in the slightest. He was funny, charming, driven. He matched her in the bedroom. He showered her with gifts – pearls, silk stockings, other luxuries. Julia's other clients appreciated her, adored her, worshipped her body and her skill. But with Tom, there was an intensity, an ambiguous sense of something more, better. Tom looked her in the eye when he talked about his future plans, how he waffled between mining and buying ranch land. Tom held Julia in his arms when he talked about home. He didn't mention her directly, but she could feel it. In spite of herself, Julia fell in love. Every time Tom came to see her, it was stronger. She'd never allowed herself to fall in love before, and it was the best drug she'd ever experienced. Tom was the one, he had to be. Somewhere in there, she began to daydream about a life as Mrs. Tom Buchanan. She became less attentive with her other clients, and they noticed. Business dropped off a bit, but she didn't mind. She was certain that something infinitely better was just over the horizon. Tom came for another visit. As they lay in her bed, he passed her a small box and asked for her opinion. She knew what was in the box and opened it with trembling fingers, gasping at how the ring glittered. He grinned, saying, yes, that was the right reaction. He hadn't been sure if it was enough for the daughter of a bank president. Julia's thoughts spiraled. Daughter of a bank president? The ring wasn't for her. Tom meant to marry someone else entirely. In the claustrophobic silence that followed, Tom took in Julia's reactions, her face, her glistening eyes. He pieced it together, and then he laughed. "'What, had she thought it was for her?' "'But she was a whore,' he said. "'A beautiful one, but it's what she was.' The silence swelled like a blister, infected with the unfolding of their realizations. After a moment, a tiny sob hitched in Julia's throat, piercing that silence, prompting Tom to sit up and take back the little box. He laughed uncomfortably, and his laughter grew. He mocked her, told her she'd been silly and stupid to imagine anything like that. He'd suspected a few times, but figured she had to be smarter than that. It was his mistake not to have shut her down ages ago. He chuckled as he called her insulting names. She was too stunned to do anything but weep in silence as he pulled his trousers over his hips. He refused to meet her gaze as he escaped into the hallway shirt half-buttoned and his shoes in his hands. The door latch clicked behind him, and Julia's agony burst open as she sobbed into the pillow. She lay there naked and cold for hours, hating Tom and hating herself more. She was a fool, just like he said. A stupid fool whore. She wanted nothing more than to silence the beating of her ruined, slaughtered heart. And that was exactly what she did. Julia Lowell took a sheet from her bed and stretched it out diagonally, long. She threaded it around a ceiling fixture and fashioned a crude but pithy slipknot. Despairing over a lost future and a broken heart, Julia Lowell took an early retirement from her career as a lady of negotiable affections, though not at all in the way she had imagined. Julia Lowell's suicide shook her little community of clients and other girls at the hotel, but it's unlikely that many others felt affected by it at the time. Just as there's no record of the name of the deceiving client who drove her to it, neither is there any indication of how he reacted to her death if at all. Although punctuated by sweet, giddy moments, Julia's life was sad and short, and the autonomy she exercised in ending it leaves behind an unsatisfying bitterness. Her ghost, it is said, is seen almost exclusively by men. Even when they don't see her, they feel her. She is a little spooky, because she's a ghost, but it's reported that her spirit is playful, coy, sensuous. She presents herself the same way she did to her clients in life. Women's experiences with Julia, when they happen, describe a stark contrast. Women who believe they've encountered Julia report an oppressive sensation washing over them. The sense of struggling in persistent, almost palpable despair and heartbreak that is not their own. Her life may have had a glamorous veneer right up until the end, but the edges were scuffed and strained. Below that surface, an inky miasma of self-loathing roiled against despair more unforgiving than the Huachuca Hills, deeper and darker than the mines. It's a great story, but it's got some problems. Chief among them are all the indicators that Julia Lowell might not have been a real person. The historical bits, Bisbee, the Copper Queen Hotel, that's all true. Julia's identity is a little stickier. Let's step back and address the obvious appeal of this ghost story. It's the sexy dancing at the foot of the bed. I'm betting most of you had a reaction similar to mine when I first heard this. At the time, we were living in Northern Sonora on the Sea of Cortez, just over the Mexican border from Arizona. It was spring, and we were looking for something fun to do over Holy Week, a way to avoid the U of A and ASU party crowds that would inevitably descend on our beaches. We figured we'd cross the border and kick around for a few days, but didn't know what to do after Tombstone and Tubac. Then my husband told me that an internet rabbit hole had led him to an old hotel in Bisbee, with a room haunted by a stripper ghost. I laughed out loud, I thought he was kidding. No, really, he said. It says she was a prostitute there, strung herself up in her room. Well, this other site says she shot herself, but anyway, if you stay in that room and you're lucky, in the middle of the night, she does some old timey burly cue strip tease. We thought this was hilarious and of course we made plans to visit Bisbee. Then the H1N1 swine flu outbreak hit Mexico, border crossings got a lot more interesting, and all the fun was cancelled for a while. We didn't make it to Bisbee that year, or the next. We've lived much farther away ever since and haven't made it back to that corner of Arizona yet. I've kept thinking about the Bisbee striptease ghost though, and when I started this podcast I knew hers would be a perfect story to share. Of course, it's never that simple. I started research and learned that Bisbee is a few decades younger than the surrounding gold rush towns with accompanying socio-historical differences. I was thrilled to learn that the ghost has an identity, that she is one Julia Lowell, according to the lore. I was disappointed to learn, almost as quickly, that there's no evidence on paper of a Julia Lowell of Cochise County. She may have used a different name professionally, But there's no death certificate, either. Not one that fits the story. Not for a hanging victim in the hotel. Not for a female with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So is Julia Lowell a fabrication of the marketing team at the Copper Queen or the Tourism Bureau? Even if that's the case, and I'm not saying it is, it may not be as crassly commercial as that sounds. People's experiences with the haunting seem genuine enough. But in the absence of a concrete identity to pin the paranormal disturbances on, perhaps an amalgam was conceived, given a name and a story. Maybe. And maybe Julia Lowell was real. If so, she sure didn't leave a paper trail. I did get one really unexpected hit with the search term, Julia Lowell. It led me to a 2008 paperback romance titled Five Star Cowboy by Charlene Sands. Ms. Sands writes, quote, romances about hot, hunky heroes with heart, unquote, according to her website, which features shirtless buff guys wearing manicured scruff and cowboy hats. This contemporary novel popped up because the protagonist is one Julia Lowell, a marketing specialist with an independent streak She hates herself for pining after an old flame, a cowboy-turned-hotelier who's just opened a Western-themed destination hotel in the mountains of southeastern Arizona. Though Julia is reluctant, the cowboy-hotelier hires her to work her magic and bring his resort into the black. Lusty workplace romance ensues, and given the genre, I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I tell you there's a happy ending. I don't usually read romances, But I read this one, you know, research. It was a paperback romance. It was satisfying and heartwarming and fun in all the ways romance readers expect. But it was also peppered with subtle references to the other Julia Lowell, the dancing phantom of the Copper Queen. All things considered, it was an unusual choice for local color, but I loved feeling like I was privy to the in-joke. The other Julia Lowell, I'm not sure I can say the real one didn't get a happy ending it was about as dismal as they come we look back at the folklore and the history that surrounds it and once again we can say there's another poor soul swallowed whole by the mountains by the desert by the social climate that grew in that bit of the Southwest I'm sort of puzzled then by the way her ghost manifests as a coquette Now, I read lots of ghost stories, and I watch a lot of Supernatural, enough to know that what we understand as the rules for ghosts, even fictional rules for fictional ghosts, have patterns and tropes and expectations. So it strikes me as odd that the ghost of Julia Lowell, who died in despair, would flirt and giggle and dance. And maybe it isn't odd. Maybe she's replaying the tedium of her working life. Maybe that is her own private hell. Or maybe her spirit is still hopeful. I don't know, and I don't have to know, but I do wonder. I know that I'm still itching to make a trip to Bisbee. I may be a woman, but I'm hoping to see or at least sense a presence at the foot of the bed because don't we all sort of want to have our feet tickled by a sexy, flirtatious ghost? Thank you for joining me for another strange and spooky tale out of the Southwest. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and you've been listening to Southwest Gothic. For more information on sources and music, visit southwestgothic.com and check out the show notes under the Notes and Credits tab. There's other info and episodes at southwestgothic.com as well. You can follow the show on Facebook at Southwest Gothic Podcast, or on Instagram at southwest.gothic. I'll be back in two weeks with another Southwestern story for you. Thanks for listening.